This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the manly world, man cave. In the piney woods of North Central Florida, God's country. In the Melton Law studio. And Melton Law, as you know, by now, I hope, is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators, the Fighting Gators, who'll be fighting homecoming and the game of Vanderbilt. So we're also protected 24-7, 365 by crime prevention and brought to you by on-the-spot cleaners, R&R Construction, Allstate, Ocasio, uh, et cetera, et cetera, Poser MD. Uh, we got them all here. Now, as you use more, here we are. We are expecting to link up here soon with Phil Kirpin, President of American Commitment. Uh, generally, sometimes we catch him en route from someplace in D.C. And D.C. is getting to be a more and more dangerous place. You know, um, we need to shoot GTR there, by golly. Um, lawmakers getting carjacked and et cetera, all the above. Meanwhile, at Coffee Caliber Company, calibercoffeecompany.com, um, when you order your coffee, Use the code WARD15 or 15% off. That is WARD15 or 15% off. Um, Faith, family, firearms, and coffee. And their vision is simple. Bring the highest quality coffee to your cup while sharing your passion for the Second Amendment. And it's sourced from farms all over the world and roasted locally. So they bring you the freshest batch possible. So use the code WARD15 for 15% off. Well, well, well. Hoping we join here in a moment with uh, my good friend, Phil Kirpin. Um, we have got a moment here to talk about the upheaval of the Congress, particularly the House. And now we've got uh, Trump volunteering to be the speaker. I don't know if things get any weirder than they are right now. We've got Biden, who is uh, finally decided, yeah, we've got to have the wall. Well, he could have decided that a long time ago. But he didn't do it. He was pushed into it. Um, reluctantly now, claiming, oh, it won't work, but we'll do it because we ought to spend the money. And everybody wonders, what? come on. It's a no-brainer. It won't hurt. It may not stop it, but it won't hurt. And, of course, the whole immigration issue needs a complete refinement. It needs to be looked at in a larger context. How do you really qualify who comes how do you know who's coming? How do you know where they go? 
And you have to remember something. This is all part of the Obamanization of America, what Ted Yoho calls the Obamanization of America. And I have reported to you, and I'll refresh you again while we're waiting on Phil, um, that Obama started bringing in immigrants quite cleverly, bringing them in and putting them in church camps, which would make it more difficult to get a search warrant, and then distributing them from those church camps all over the country. And we covered that story with how he brought in Middle East males, deposited them in Putnam County, and then distributed them all over the place, and most concentration in Minnesota. Morning, Phil. How are you? I didn't want you to be carjacked in D.C. Nope. Uh, I haven't been carjacked yet, but we do have 750 now on the year in D.C., so it's um, it's a pretty out-of-control situation. Well, when you weren't here right at nine, I said, oh, my golly, he went to get in his car and somebody got him. <laughs> <laughs> you, went get, you went to get in your electric car. Yeah, no, I'm going to stick with my, my internal combustion vehicle as long as uh, they, until they outlaw it and take it from me. I'm probably going to stick with it. Well, I was looking at your article. I know we're going to talk about that. I am so bemused, I guess is the right word, at the automobile worker striking or higher wages when and in embracing Biden coming there to support them when Biden's the one to put them out there in the first place. Well, I mean, he's really intent on destroying the auto industry. And uh, the insane thing is the auto companies are basically on board with his agenda. So they, they somehow have this idea that they can switch to selling electric vehicles and be okay, even though they're losing money on everyone they sell, even with massive subsidies. And so it's a very strange situation. I mean, Ford recently said that they're losing on average $32,000 on every electric vehicle they sell. Um, but their business strategy is to only sell electric vehicles. So where where, the, where do they think they're headed with this? And, you know, you, you look at the prices on the electric vehicles are already over $60,000. And if they're losing over 30, I mean, they can't make money unless they're charging hundred grand for these things for you know for regular sedans, not for some fancy high performance car or something like that. And um, you know, you you kind of wonder like how how are people going to be able to pay for these vehicles um, if they're actually priced based on what they cost and companies aren't taking huge losses and and this is with or this is with huge subsidies. This is with a $7,500 subsidy to the purchaser, with billions of dollars in direct subsidies to the manufacturers, with government spending billions on charging stations. With all of that, they're losing money on these things. And then you sort of you look at it and you think about it, you say, how can this possibly go the way the administration wants it to go and have the whole vehicle fleet turn over to these electric vehicles when the economics don't work? And the answer is they're going to do it by force. They're going to do it by mandate. Uh, they actually have, in regulation now, they have a schedule of the percentage of all vehicles sold each year that have to be electric vehicles. And, it, it you know, we're at about 7% now. 7% of sales are electric vehicles now. They mandate for model year 26, which is only two years away, that it's 17%. For model year 27, which is only three years away, they mandate that it's 30%. 
and it keeps going up. So for model year 2030, they're at 50%. For model year 2032, they're at 67%. So if the Biden rules stay in place, even in the next couple of years, we're going to have a situation where there's an artificial scarcity of internal combustion vehicles because the uh, you know the market overall is only allowed to sell you know, for model year 27, they're only allowed to have 70% of the vehicles be internal combustion vehicles, but that's what 90% plus of people want. Uh, you're going to have a scarcity. They're not going to be enough to go around. You're going to have to go searching all over town to find the two, you know, internal combustion vehicles that are actually on a lot. And they're going to be five other people that want them. So they're going to go up way above MSRP. And so we're really looking at a disaster. And that's just in the next couple of years. I mean, when you just start talking about you know, 2032, let's say Biden gets what he wants and only one third of all vehicles are allowed to be internal combustion vehicles. Um, the price is going to be crazy. It's going to be like a super luxury item just to have a regular car in this country. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to have a situation where either you have to be rich to get an internal combustion vehicle or you have to take out some crazy $100,000 10-year loan or something like that, or you just drive your used car forever. You don't get new cars anymore. We become like Cuba and people have, you know, decades old cars that they just somehow keep on the road. And you kind of wonder why, you know, why are they doing this? It's so crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It can't be for global warming because the global warming models say that this makes no difference. So what's this even really about? And I think this is about sort of the utopian left-wing vision that they want to get us out of our cars and out of our single family homes and into, you know, high-rise housing projects and taking electric scooters and, you know, this whole kind of what that sounds good to them. To normal people, it sounds like hell, but to them, that sounds like a utopia. And I think that's what they're, they're trying to, to drive us towards. And I just, I worry people don't understand how fast this is coming and how real this is, because you talk about model year 26 and 27, that's really right around the corner, really right around the corner. And, you know, cars are already going crazy because of the Biden inflation and everything else. The prices are haywire. It's going to get much, much worse as these mandates really bite. And, you know, you talk about keeping the old cars, but what they'll do is drive the parts and they'll drive the mechanics. And all of a sudden you won't be able to have the quote unquote shade tree mechanic that can keep yourself running. Not to mention, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's this push to even convert farm vehicles, such as tractors, to electric. Am I right or wrong on that? Is that I know it's not in this particular. Uh, you know, that's not covered by the by the regulations that I've been looking at. But yeah. it certainly wouldn't surprise me if they've got something else uh, going on that because they're they're obsessed. I mean, they're even trying to convert military vehicles to electric. What about how they're going to charge them in theater? Right? You think about all the crazy problems with this, but uh, it, it's like a religion. Uh, with these people, they're just totally against fossil fuel. They want everything to be electric. But, you know, the the irony of it is you still have to charge the electric car. <laughs> you know? right. And and the idea that you could do all that with wind and solar is completely false. It doesn't it's not borne out at all. And, you know, they don't want us to build nuclear. They're against hydroelectric because of the salmon or whatever. And so, you know, they, they, we have severe resource constraints on generating the electricity that's supposed to charge all these cars. Also, I mean, in, in Kansas, I don't know if you saw this story last week. In Kansas, they had a coal plant that was slated for retirement this year, but they're now going to keep it running at least five more years because they need the power from the coal plant for a new electric vehicle battery factory. So they're going to keep running the coal plant so that they can make batteries for electric cars. Well, you know, in today's Wall Street Journal, there's a piece. I just glanced at it before we came on the air. I'm forgotten who's written it. I can't look it up right now, but about the very subject we're talking about. Maybe you're familiar with it. Um, 
So people are beginning to be aware of it and write about it. But, you know, who knows what crazy Biden thinks? Look at what he's done with with the border wall all of a sudden. Um, yeah, isn't that amazing? They're going to waive 26 environmental laws to build border wall, um, which I'm fine with, by the way, because, you know, you have to have a sense of priorities and, uh, you know, the environment's important, but stopping, you know, what the, the border chaos is more important. So I'm fine with waiving the environmental laws. But, Ward, what do you think would have happened if President Trump said, we're going to waive 26 environmental oh laws God. to build border wall? Well, it's one thing that sensible people do agree on. And, um, that means there's very few Democrats that do it, agree with us. But there is no question about there's a double standard. I mean, there is a um, one reality for one. They would have impeached him just for that. They would have yeah, said that he's sure. destroying the unit of the world and he's evil. And they would have impeached him just for that. It would have been impeachment number three or whatever, just for that, if he had tried that. Well, now he's threatening to come back as Speaker of the House. I think that <laughs> really, really has got him ruffled. You know, I, I saw the comments he made on that. I mean, he was kind of like, look, there are a lot of good people. I, 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 he said, look, I, you know, if I could do it while I'm running for president, uh, maybe I'd do it. But you, know, you can't do that while you're running for president. You need to be out on the campaign trail. And while you're running, I, mean, running I think he enjoys that people are sort of mentioning it, but I don't think he was very serious about it uh, from, from what I saw of that interview. Well, it's another one of the showman qualities he has. He's not going to say no, right? He's yeah. going to say, oh, yeah. you know, right. the way right. he always well, what's this law you mentioned in your uh, piece, uh, 49 USC? What is that about? And um, where is okay, that? So this is the most amazing thing, right? We've got these mandates from the Biden administration. They're mandating the percentage of vehicles that need to be electric vehicles every year by model year. They've got a table. They lay it all out. There's no secret or ambiguity about it. That's illegal. You can't. <laughs> there's actually a law on the books that says the government cannot mandate what are called uh, alternative fuel vehicles. It's prohibited. And so when they develop, the way they're driving all of this word is they're taking the, the fuel economy standards, the CAFE standards, which the way they work is they set, you know, a, the average fuel economy for each manufacturer has to be whatever the number is, miles per gallon. It's, you know, it was 35 and then it was 43, whatever it is. Well, what they're doing is they're saying, we're going to raise the miles per gallon higher than any internal combustion vehicle can meet. And therefore, the only way to comply with it is to sell electric vehicles. And we're going to raise the miles per gallon every year according to the schedule of how much electric vehicles we want. And we're not, there's no secret. I mean, this is the only way to comply with it is to have these electric vehicles. They lay it out. Uh, but the law says that when you develop the miles per gallon, you cannot consider alternative fuel vehicles. So what they're doing is 100% exactly what Congress said they were not allowed to do. Congress said you could develop the fuel economy standards, but they have to be based only on internal combustion vehicles, and they have to be technologically feasible. And what they're doing is totally the opposite of that. And so they should lose in court. But, you know, I hate to count on the courts because they let us down quite frequently, even when it's pretty clear uh, what the outcome should be. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, but they've got sort of three shots on goal, if you will, because they've got EPA regulations driving it. They've got Department of Transportation regulations driving it. And then they also granted California a waiver. Normally, states can't set their own fuel economy standards because it's considered interstate commerce. It's a national market. It's exclusive federal jurisdiction. Uh, but the Biden administration gave California a waiver 
to set their own standards. And then they said any state can either choose the Biden standards or the California standards. I ran through what the Biden numbers are. California is even crazier. They have a total prohibition, a total ban on selling internal combustion vehicles uh, starting in 2035. And I think 10 or 11 states have followed them. So what you can see what the Biden administration is trying to do is you get three shots on goal. You only need one of them to survive and uh, you can essentially cripple uh, internal combustion vehicles. And so um, to really get a total legal victory, we would need the courts to strike down the EPA rule, the Department of Transportation rule and the California waiver. And all three are being litigated, but... Um, you know, maybe we only win two out of three. Maybe we only win one out of three. I don't know. And then, of course, there's also this issue where maybe we win all three, but it takes until 2025 or 2026 to get the Supreme Court to rule on all of them. And by then, there might not be any factories left to make internal combustion cars. There are very few, or the companies might feel they're sort of committed from a development and pipeline standpoint. And so, you know, we saw something similar to this, uh, Ward, a few years ago when they were really in the uh, Obama administration going after the coal plants. And they used something called the mercury air toxic standard, uh, which I thought was pretty clearly illegal. Most people thought it was pretty clearly illegal, but they used it to close hundreds of coal plants. And then it finally got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said this is illegal and struck it down. And the Obama administration put out a statement that said, oh, well, we don't care if it was struck down because it already did what we wanted it to do. The plants are closed. We don't need it anymore. And so I think some of these regulations, it might end up being the same thing. They might eventually get struck down. But by then, the auto companies might be all in on the electrics and there might be no going back. And uh, that might be what they're hoping for. And, and, and of course, though, you don't know. You can't count on the court. So I hope that this issue will be kind of a top five kind of issue in the election. And people will really understand that if the Democrats win again, they're not going to be able to get an internal combustion vehicle unless, you know, first of all, it's going to be hard to find one. But if you do find it's going to be extremely expensive. And, uh, you know, if you want to have the choice of what car and truck makes sense for you, whether that's a regular gas car or, a, you know, or an electric or a regular diesel truck or whatever it might be, if you want that choice, if you want to make that choice instead of politicians making it, I think we need to have, uh, you know, we need to have a big Republican year because the Democrats are all behind this stuff. And the charging is it's so uh, agonizing. I mean, I'm, you know, I see some of these people walk the dog, swing the kid, uh, take a nap, and eat lunch. And they still aren't charged. And I don't know how in the world and how can you accommodate all these people who are going to have to stop and get charged? That's another thing that, you know, I wonder about. Yeah, I just I don't see how it's happening. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. I, you know, mm-hmm. Tesla has, um, you know, their superchargers, the fastest chargers that are supposed to be the greatest. They still take 20 minutes just to get you to an 80 percent charge. And that's like. The greatest, the quickest. I mean, you can fill a gas tank in about two minutes. So, you know, and and with a typical regular charger, like not a supercharger, it takes an hour, two hours sometimes. So, you know, it's very hard, I think. You know, you have to plan your day in a way uh, to, you know, intercity travel becomes a big problem if this is your only vehicle, which is why most of the people who bought them now, it's not their only vehicle. They've got another, they've got another vehicle in the home. And so when they do intercity travel, they use their gas car. Uh, and, you know, maybe they love their electric for driving around town. They charge it at night for that kind of an application. It makes a lot of sense. It might be great. But when the government tries to force everyone to use it, now you're going to have all the circumstances where it doesn't make sense, but it's going to be the only vehicle people are able to get. And I think that's going to cause massive problems. And where the other issue that I think people don't necessarily understand is, you know, batteries lose their ability to hold power over time. And, you know, like, you're, you know, you might have had a cell phone a few years ago when you bought it. 
that was good for 12 or 14 hours on a charge. And, you know, now it's a few years later, now it's seven, you know, and, and it doesn't hold as much energy as it used to. Well, I mean, if it's your car and when you buy it, it's got a 200 mile range or 250 mile range. And then five years later, it's, you know, half that your car is suddenly much, much less useful. And, you know, I think that the degradation issues with these batteries are going to make the vehicle life uh, much less than people have become used to. I mean, the late model vehicles, internal combustion vehicles, they last a long time now. People are driving cars, you know, well over 100,000 miles, sometimes all the way up to 200,000 miles. I think what we're going to see with these electrics is, uh, even though they don't have as many moving parts and they're supposedly simpler from a maintenance standpoint, uh, first of all, I worry that a lot of people are not going to take them in regularly because they don't have oil changes. They're not going to necessarily know when there's a system that's not performing well that needs maintenance. So there's going to be potentially a deferred maintenance issue, but the battery degradation issues, I think, are going to make the overall vehicle uh, life less uh, than we've got with internal combustion vehicles. But all that said, Ward, if we were doing this the right way, if we were not having government force it with mandates and massive subsidies, then this would all be worked out by the market. The people who want it, and it makes sense for them, they would get it. The people who don't want it wouldn't, and it would either become a big thing or it would remain a niche thing. And, you know, either way, it would be what people want. That's not what's happening right now. It's being forced on people whether they want it or not, and that's going to cause enormous problems. Well, you know, I'm trying to find a replacement battery. Well, I'll tell you what, we had a battery here on one of the chainsaws, and uh, it went bad mysteriously. Well, good golly, we couldn't find another one. Because of the chain of distribution coming out of China. The battery's coming out of China, you know? Yeah, that's the other irony of this is, you know, for decades, for decades, they told us, oh, it's national security. We're dependent on foreign oil. That's why we need to switch to other energy sources. This was the big drumbeat, you know, through the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, was sort of the environmentalists tried to make this national security scarcity argument. And then, of course... With the shale revolution, with hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, we had a huge boom in oil production in the United States. And we're number one in the world again, even with Biden putting a lot of thumbs on the scale to try to keep a lid on it. Uh, We're number one in the world again, and uh, we're rocking and rolling. And we could be rocking and rolling much more as we were under Trump uh, with domestic oil production. And so we've got no scarcity or national security issue when it comes to oil. And yet now they want to switch us from something that we're number one in to something where we'd be highly dependent on our main geostrategic rival, China, because they control the supply chain for lithium and for a lot of the other minerals and elements uh, that go into the electric vehicles, cobalt, uh, which is largely comes from you know child mining operations in Congo that are controlled by China and a lot of the other minerals that go into these things. Now, there has actually just been a very large lithium find in the United States. Uh, one of the things that's going to be very interesting to see is whether the environmentalists and the Greens let us actually mine it, because they it's almost impossible to get new mines permitted in this country. And so I'm sort of a little bit pessimistic that we'll actually be able to get that going, uh, even though it does look like that's a major fine. So for now, at least, uh, what the electric vehicle mandates are doing is they're switching us from a resource that we have abundantly domestically, oil, uh, to resources where we actually are vulnerable uh, from a supply chain and a resource shortage standpoint, uh, which is pretty incredible, considering that they used to make the argument that the reason to switch off oil was foreign dependency. And now they don't care. Now they want to switch off oil still anyway, even though that argument's been completely reversed uh, to the opposite. Where was that find? I think it's in I think it's in New Mexico. I'm not sure exactly. It's somewhere in the it's somewhere in the Mountain West. Well, um, 
got a question here in the chat. Has Biden come up with a plan to replenish our oil reserves? I suspect not. Not that I've seen. And we're actually much lower in the strategic petroleum reserve than people even understand because the last, you know, 15 or 20 percent of the volume is basically brine. It's unusable. And so the, the, you know, when you start getting as low, I think we're down under 50 percent now. We're somewhere in the 40s. Um, only half of what's left is probably usable, uh, something like that, maybe a little more than half. And so it's really pretty outrageous that in order to man- try to manipulate the markets and get through that election last year, um, they depleted a reserve that's supposed to be there, not for economic or political reasons, but it's supposed to be there for national security reasons when you have an actual shortage and you need to power your military vehicles. And, you know, that that's the purpose of it. That's why it's there. And, and the other thing that really makes me angry about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is remember in 2020, when there were lockdowns everywhere and oil demand plummeted, and spot price went to 30, then 20, then 10, then for a while, it went negative, people would actually pay you to take delivery of oil. Um, Trump wanted to use that as an opportunity to top up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for free. Hey, we can go grab it for free. And, and um, Chuck Schumer blocked him. They actually passed something to block him. And Schumer bragged about how great it was that he blocked you know, President Trump from topping up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And so you know, the Democrats have done bizarre things uh, with the SPR that have nothing to do with what it's supposed to be there for. They didn't let uh, Trump top it up when we could have done it basically for free or near free. And uh, Biden basically sold it down to pretty dangerous levels just to try to prop things up economically. And I really do fear a little bit, Ward, that he could try it again for his own presidential election, even from these very low levels. And uh, it could be, you know, it, it, we, we could put ourselves in a very dangerous strategic position uh, by not having a, a functional reserve if he tries to do that. I'm a Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment, a big conservative think tank that um, you may participate in org, And um, today we're covering the subject of, among other subjects I'm sure we'll talk about with you, uh, listeners, uh, I'll look in the chat line here for you. Um, this craziness about, I've actually heard Biden say, I'm going to put an end to fossil fuel. I'm going to put an end to the automobile. And the article in the Wall Street Journal, I remember now, they're coming for your automobile. I basically think is his uh, tagline. And they're actually coming for your automobile. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, the, um, I didn't even mention one of the other things they did uh, to, to try to move to electric vehicles. They have a, they have a $50 billion loan guarantee fund that was tucked into the Inflation Reduction Act, where the government's, uh, you know, going to dole out basically federally guaranteed loans uh, you know, to the companies they like uh, to promote electric vehicles. And the guy who runs that program at the Department of Energy, his name is Jigger Shah. And he went on Twitter the other day, X the other day. And um, he said, I-, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but this is a very close paraphrase. He said, it's obviously not sustainable to replace all the internal combustion vehicles with electric vehicles. So we're going to have to have things like micro mobility which is a term I wasn't really familiar with. So I Googled micromobility and it means electric scooters ward. That's what, that's what, that's what it means. So they're not just saying we've got to replace your car, regular car with an electric car. They're saying some people will be lucky enough to replace their regular car with an electric car, but a lot of people are getting no car at all and you'll like it. And you're going to probably be in a, you know, a high rise 
housing project and uh, we're going to expect you to take an electric scooter around town. And uh, I don't know how you carry your grocery bags on that or take your kids to a practice, but uh, it's not going to work for a lot of people I know. Or take public transit. Uh, uh transit and get mowed yeah that was in the same tweet it was like micro mobility and more public transit he said that too yeah 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 well you know a lot of these people i think you know they have to be city dwellers they don't really get out of town much i guess how else does their mind work i mean come on here for example if we want to travel from one of the towns near us say from alachua to high springs all these towns are laid out 10 miles from each other because in the old days, that's how far you could go in one day on a horse. So, you know, you go from High Springs to Newbury, 10 miles. You go from Newbury to what? 10 miles. 10 miles on an electric scooter, huh? Yeah. In the country. Well, but remember also, you know, they don't, they don't just want you out of your car. They want you out of your house. They want you off your land. They want you in literally a high-rise housing project. They think that's the, you know, they think that's like the greatest way to live. Which, you know, if you want to live that way for you, Okay. But they're trying to force it on everyone, I think. And uh, they have very little awareness of how um, unpopular and kind of ridiculous that is for, for most Americans. And, you know, I think it would be fine if they had these crazy ideas and we ignored them and went on with our lives. The problem is they're going to make it so if you want to buy a regular internal combustion car or truck, it's going to cost some obscene astronomical amount of money because they're artificially restricting the supply of those, even though a lot of people still need them and want them. And um, they're, that means they're not going to be enough to go around. And the people who do get them are going to pay an insane price because they're you know, competing for something that's been made artificially scarce by government. And a lot of people, you're not going to be able to get it. And to your point, you know, I don't know how long you're going to be able to keep, you know, old vehicles on the road and uh, just, just, uh, you know, work around it that way. But, when you look at Cuba, they've still got, you know, they've still got 55 Chevys that they're driving around. You know, I mean, And so that could be our future to a certain extent. Uh, it is harder now because there's so many computerized systems in the vehicles and it's more difficult to just figure out, you know, they, they're less mechanical. And so it's harder to fix things when they go wrong. But, you know, people will figure out ways if that's the only thing you can do, because, you know, a new a new sedan costs 100 grand or a new truck costs 250 grand or whatever it ends up being, you know. For most normal people, they're going to have to just keep that used car more or less forever. And uh, I think it's a very sad situation because it's completely unnecessary. This is all being done by government, and there, there's no particular benefit to it either. It's not like they're going to save the world from global warming because of this. I mean, even if you reduced U.S. fossil fuel use to zero tomorrow, it basically has no effect on global warming because China and India and whoever just make up for it. And so there's no benefit really of any kind to be associated with all of this economic pain that they're causing. I'm with Phil Kerbin, President of American Commitment. We've got to take a break for the weather. We'll be right back on the War Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott. 
And I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward's Weather Report, brought to you by Lewis Oil Chevron Station's fossil fuel, by golly. Filling up cars with gasoline, changing oil, all the above. So here we are. We got a basically mild day here now, but get ready for a cold snap. There is going to be cold air visit our territory for the first time, really, since we've been coming out of the summer months and and now in the autumn. It's even more severe in New England area. They're going to pick up rainfall from Philippe, and then they're going to get cold weather. And it's going to be the coolest air of the season all across the upper Midwest and Northeast, as well as here in the South. So maybe you'll break out your first log for your first fireplace fire. Who knows? Well, we're talking to Phil Kirpin here, president of American Commitment. We've been talking about, of all things, of the electric vehicle, which is a hoax perpetrated on mankind by the progressive left for all sorts of economic reasons, ironic economic reasons. And, you know, this is all part of another fiasco known as climate change. Somehow man can uh, control his climate when he can't even change the weather for tomorrow. That's even after he's consulted a farmer's almanac. So we have got to sort this out. And one of the ways to participate in it is to vote out the rascals, get them to talk truthfully about what the issues are and quit going down a rabbit hole. One of the strangest things that's happened is all of a sudden Biden's going to build a wall. I guess if he could reverse his madness on that, he could reverse it on the electric vehicle. But I don't know what compels him because they're giving away a lot of our money. I want to talk to Phil a little bit about that. It's follow the money. Where's this money coming from that is bribing these automakers, Phil? Yeah, they're, uh, 
there was a lot of money uh, in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act uh, to uh, subsidize green energy and electric vehicles um, pr- pretty massively. Uh, the most obvious one that most people know about is the $7,500 direct tax credit for electric vehicle purchasers. Right at the point of purchase, you typically get the $7,500. Bucks. Um, although even with that, they're still very expensive. Um uh, but also there's about $12 billion that Biden's given directly to manufacturers to retool, auto manufacturers directly to retool for electric vehicles. There's uh, the $50 billion of uh, federally backed loan guarantees that are being doled out by the Department of Energy. And then, of course, uh, there's all the other broader uh, green energy subsidies, which uh, electric vehicles can be eligible for as well. And there's about $300 billion of those. So, I mean, just the amount of the, the dollar figures... You know, your eyes glaze over. They're enormous. Uh, they're massive. Uh, but as I said, you know, even with billions and billions of dollars of subsidies, Ford says they're losing $32,000 on every electric vehicle they sell. So the economics of these things are very unfavorable, even with huge subsidies. And, and it's not like they're selling them cheap and losing $32,000. They're selling them for over $60,000 and still losing $32,000 on each one. So I think, you know, even with all of the subsidies, the actual real price, if they were going to try to, you know, not take a loss on each unit is, you know, it's a hundred thousand dollars basically. Uh, and that's even with all the subsidies. So you, you think about how expensive these things are and that they're really a luxury good, uh, more than anything else. And then you think about, well, the government's going to try to force these to be essentially the only ones that are available or, you know, to be even by 2032, two thirds of all cars that can be sold have to be electric vehicles. And as I said, uh, all the cars are going to have to get that expensive or more because what's going to happen is the, you know, there's going to be a lot more demand for the internal combustion vehicles than they're actually allowed to sell with the restricted supply because of the Biden mandate. And so those prices are going to probably rise even higher than where the electric vehicle prices are. And people are either going to need to be very, very wealthy to get a new vehicle, or it's going to, they're going to need basically a mortgage to buy a new car. New cars are going to start having, you know, 10 or 12 year loans or something. I mean, it's going to be, there's going to be no other way to make it work. Um, and I think a lot of normal people are going to have to just keep their current cars forever or for as long as they possibly can. And so that, you know, one of those big quality of life things that, you know, one of those big quality of life events that most people have, which is, you know, every so often you get a new car or, you know, you get a low mileage used car or whatever it is, uh, that's going to become much less frequent for most people, uh, unfortunately. And and um, because government decided, I mean, not not for any logical or, or real reason, uh, just because government decided. And I did, uh, during the break word, I did read that Wall Street Journal article. And um, it's very interesting because the point that they make is that this is now a culture war. Um, yeah, more so than just being about economics. Uh, this yeah. is now, you know, you drive the electric car so that everyone can see what a good person you are, that you love the environment or whatever. And, you know, if you drive a regular car, then you're a nasty polluter and uh, people will will look down at you and think, you know, and this is um, this is a very dangerous mentality, I think, especially because it's not grounded in any reality. There's <laughs> no, you know, it's not environmentally harmful to drive a regular car. They're the cleanest they've ever been in history. Uh, let's get real. And so uh, I do think that even beyond the government policy, we've got this broader problem that, you know, in the culture, in the schools, in the Hollywood, everywhere else, uh, they are indoctrinating people that, you know, if you use 
you know, gasoline or diesel fuel or any other fossil fuel, then you're a bad person and you're culturally distasteful. And so I think we got to fight on that front also. Uh, we got to fight on all fronts because uh, otherwise we're going to suffer a significant decline in sort of quality of life. We have a viewer says, anybody remember Obama's buddies getting rich off the bankrupt Solyndra? Yeah, you know, Solyndra, Solyndra, um, you know, the, the same program, the same Department of Energy program that did Solyndra, they get basically $350 billion of loans, of taxpayer-backed loans, uh, to dole out in the Inflation Reduction Act. Because there's $300 billion, I'm saying billion with a B, there's $300 billion uh, for green energy, and there's $50 billion for electric vehicles. And so, you know, we're going to get thousands of Solyndras. Uh, you know, and, and, and by the way, the all of the loan guarantees, the disbursement of all of the loan guarantees, it's being overseen by John Podesta, okay, former Clinton White House chief of staff, who then ran the left wing Center for American Progress and then ran the Hillary Clinton for president campaign, is who's in charge of overseeing $350 billion in federal loan guarantees. What does he know about? energy and uh and electric vehicles and the you know the engineering he knows zero zero what what he does know is politics Ward. he knows politics and i think that uh, this obscene massive amount of our money that's going to be lent out and you know i think a lot of it's never going to be paid back uh it's going to it's all going to be driven by what's good for them politically and who kicks back into democratic causes and candidates and whatever else. I mean, they've they've fueled the left wing political machine in this country uh, to a staggering level. I mean, you know, you, the biggest concern, what's the biggest conservative group out there? Heritage Foundation. It's a uh, hundred million dollars or something like that. Well, you, you think about that. They're, they're talking about doing like, you know, a thousand of those. You know, I mean, just the, the, the they're talking about the billions they're doing with three thousand of those if it's 300 billion dollars okay so you know just the 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 size of what we're talking about is so out of line with everything else in politics and the amount of money that's going to be flooding in in the name of green energy uh, of our money of taxpayer money um it's going to it's going to fuel the left-wing political machine in this country which will then work against us on these policies and everything else and uh i, I really think you know, I know there the Republicans have a lot of things they say are their must-haves, and I get why the border's at the top of the list, but they've got to get rid of these slush funds. I mean, just the amount of money involved is insane, and uh, the people who are running it are political. It's They're political people. And so if you think Solyndra was bad, I think it's going to be much, much worse this time uh, based on who's running it and how much more of our money is at risk this time. Yeah, it's... Uh... And by the way, the one really good investment that the Department of Energy made, the one that actually was successful, which was Tesla, taxpayers got zero of the upside of that because Musk is smarter than the people in the government. And the way he wrote the loan, he was able to pay it back and prevent the taxpayer from enjoying any of the upside. And so with the ones that go busto, we, we take a huge loss. And they were too stupid in the way they wrote the thing uh, to actually participate in the upside of the one company that actually was successful. And isn't it true, would you say, according to one of our viewers, that the Inflation Reduction Act is really the devaluation of the Dollar Act? 
Well, I mean, it certainly it certainly didn't reduce inflation, and it certainly <laughs> doesn't reduce the deficit, which was supposedly the mechanism by which it would reduce inflation. You know, they they relied on a fraudulent score. Essentially, they said that the various green energy giveaways were going to total. I think they said three hundred billion dollars in the original score, and now it's like one point two trillion. It's quadrupled in a year, and um, I now I saw one private estimate now that says it's going to be over two trillion. So it's going. I mean, so. Look, they, that bill will not reduce the deficit. It will increase it pretty dramatically. And the way they designed most of these programs, most of these giveaways, there's no limit to the number of claims that can be made. And so uh, we, we don't know, but the sky's the limit of how much uh, money ultimately is going to be spent under that bill. And, um, you know, Joe Manchin was the guy who did it. Remember, Mr. I'm supposedly a conservative. He said Absolutely. he was against it. He said, build back better. We'll never do it. It's terrible. I'm against it. And then at the end of the day, his only ask was, okay, but change the name of it to Inflation Reduction Act so I can pretend I'm against inflation and then I'll vote for it. And then that's basically what they did. It's simply amazing, really. Uh, one of the things we lament the absence of is true leadership. Somebody who will let the chips fall where they may and take the proper position. What do you make of, if this is not too much of a segue over to a rabbit hole, um, the Speaker of the House possibilities? Do you think uh, there's anything there that could come good out of this? And um, Well, you you know, I, I think that Scalise and Jordan are both uh, pretty strong conservatives. Uh, I, I don't think... Um, I, you know, I, I would have no reason to object to either one of them. And it's difficult in, in leadership fights. Uh, you know, there are always a lot of dynamics behind the scenes you don't even know about. So as an outside person, I, I don't usually endorse in these. I don't get too involved in them. It's, uh, it, it's, it's hard to have any impact anyway. And, you know, if you pick the wrong one, the other guy who gets it's going to remember that you picked the wrong one. And frankly, I think they'd both be good. I mean, look, the, the benefit of it's Scalise, which I do think is an important benefit, is that he's from a major oil and gas state in Louisiana and having sort of that perspective at the top, uh, given how important these issues are right now and what's at stake, I think that could be very beneficial. Uh, that said, I mean, Jim Jordan's one of the top conservatives in Congress and has been for a long time. It's rock solid on all the issues. So I, you know, I don't have a problem with either one of them. I, you know, we'll, we'll sort of watch how it shakes out. I do think that they're both much more conservative than Kevin McCarthy was, and they both are much more substantive I think McCarthy was much more political. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, from, from a conservative perspective, it's going to be an upgrade with either one of Scalise or, or Jordan versus McCarthy. And so I, we'll, we'll watch how it shakes out. And, uh, you know, I have, I have friends and I have friends who work for both of them. Uh, so I'll, I, I'll have a pretty good way to, to get in the ear of, of whoever it is uh, with either one. Well, I agree with you. I tend to think the same as you do on this. Um, either one will do well. And take control of it. I was talking with Ted Yolo when we have on our show on Wednesdays about Pelosi. What was it about Pelosi enabled her to get things done? And he said, well, you have to remember what her daughter said about her, that uh, she will smile at you while she cuts your throat. And uh, (laughs) that's the way. way, By the way, don't you think she's still in charge of the Democrats? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. And I think one of the most embarrassing moment for me is that citizen was watching her tear up the State of the Union address as Trump was giving it. I've never seen anything like that. 
Well, you know, the, the Democrats, um, Democrats are generally much more cutthroat about politics than Republicans are uh, for various reasons. I think it's mostly because, you know, so much of their worldview and their values is sort of bound up in government action. Uh, and they sort of depend on government for so much of their livelihood and for so many of the things that they believe in that uh, just the stakes feel higher for them. They need these things. You know, I think for, for a lot of conservatives, it's kind of like, oh, if the government did nothing today, that's, that's good. <laughs> you know, we'll go on. Yeah, you know, really, yeah, we've yeah. got other things to do. That's a positive. Uh, so I think just there's a different, they, I think for them, the stakes feel higher. Uh, when it comes to politics. And I think that's why they're a little more cutthroat and a little more aggressive. But I mean, I think our side needs to kind of match that intensity because when you get to a certain point with the government being however, however big and however intrusive at everyone, then, then you can't not care about it because it prevents you from being able to do you know anything else that you value. And so uh, we're getting to the point where, uh, you know, if you just want to be left alone and do other things, you kind of need to pay attention to politics just so that you can sort of get them, you know, out of your way a little bit. I know Ted can, uh, thinks we should have handled this uh, budget thing a long time ago. And that the problem is go to these chairs of these committees and tell them to produce or get out of the chair. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that this was really, I think, a very valid criticism of McCarthy by Matt Gates, as he basically said, look, you know, you promised at the beginning of the year there were going to be 12 appropriations bills and we were going to handle them individually. And, you know, where are they? Why didn't it happen? And, you know, it's easy to say, well, the appropriators didn't really want to do it or whatever. But, you know, if you if you had real leadership, you had real strong leadership, to your point, he would have said, this is the number. Okay, we're going to be flat at 2022 levels or whatever number you decided on. Write your bills to this number. We're doing four bills in June, four bills in July, four bills in August. We're not going on recess until all 12 are done. And if you don't produce the bill by you know this date and have it all laid out on the calendar, then we'll replace you and we'll have someone right. else run that subcommittee and produce that bill. And right. I think that if you had that structure and the very clear instruction, um, then it would happen because you'd replace the personnel as necessary until you made it happen. And uh, I don't think they had a schedule. I don't think they laid anything out. And more significantly, they didn't really have the numbers set because recall, you know, they said, oh, we need to negotiate on debt ceiling to figure out the numbers. And then they said, okay, we agreed. We got kind of rolled by the Democrats, but we still want to go to lower numbers and sort of, you know, I, I don't love the appropriators, but they do kind of have a pretty valid excuse this year in that, now, how can they write their bills when they don't know how much money they're supposed to spend? <laughs> because the leadership hasn't given them a clear uh, direction on what the, the top line number is for each bill. And so I think that would, the right way to do it would have been at the beginning of the year to say, these are the numbers. We're going back to 2022. Or, I mean, if it were me, I'd say we're going back to 2019 because then you'd have a balanced budget. But, you know, whatever the numbers you decide, you roll it back to a certain year, say, these are the numbers. This, these are the dates that these bills are going to be on the floor. You need to have the committee work done. That's how, I, that's what, that's what a speaker who wanted to be successful on keeping that promise would have done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gone with uh, Phil Carpenter here, American commitment. Uh, anything else that American commitment has got in its uh, uh, toolbox, if we will, to use that term that you're working on? Yeah, we've got, um, 
we're going to have another round of the, what I think is the stupidest issue uh, in politics, which is net neutrality. They're going to try to bring back the Obama regulations again at the FCC. So uh, we're going to really mock and ridicule them a little bit. Remember when Trump repealed them, they said it was going to be the end of the world and the Internet was going to break and we were all going to die. Well, it's been five years. None of that happened. But these idiots are trying to bring those regulations back anyway. So that that's that's coming up uh, on the FCC front. Um we are pushing comments into the Department of Transportation on the uh, electric vehicle mandates that we've been talking about. So if people want to send an official comment in on that, we've got a form letter written on AmericanCommitment.org. You can send in or edit however you want on uh, that one. And, uh, you know, we're staying engaged in these in these spending fights and trying to kind of watch how it plays out. Uh, you know, obviously now we've got to have a week or two to elect a new speaker, but we're, you know, I'm hoping that we'll... Um, you know, after that's done, we'll actually you know see through some some spending reductions. At a minimum, get the one percent reduction that's now set to occur automatically because of the Massey provision. And uh, you know, we're going to try to try to fight back. You know, all these things happening on the regulatory front, and also get a little bit of uh, spending restraint if possible. So that's kind of the main things. Uh, we also, of course, and as we've talked about at length before, we have our kind of our major project our commitment to seniors project where we kind of fight back against AARP and uh, all of the right, advocacy with United health. And so that's a big section of our website also. And we're kind of always active on that because they're doing so much stuff around the primaries. And so we're kind of going to their events and saying, they, 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 you know, be careful. These guys are not your friends and that kind of thing. Um, but look, everything that we do is on AmericanCommitment.org. We actually revamped the website a couple months ago. I think it's much easier to use now. And uh, if folks are not getting our emails, uh, you can sign up there on the website and, and you'll get those. Yeah, we'll put that link up here uh, on our chat line. Um, yeah, the healthcare costs are definitely... Obama, Obama did not bend the curve the way he told us he would. That, that, that's what I was going to ask you about. You, you understand that as well as anybody. And we need maybe a tutorial refresher on that. What in the uh, you know, they told us, you know, healthcare costs have been rising very sharply basically since the nineties. And uh you know, Democrats keep telling us, well, government will take it over, regulate it, and then costs uh, will come down. And of course, Obama's big pitch on Obamacare was that he was gonna bend the cost curve and he was gonna flatten it out, and uh, it's a completely failed. You look at the you look at healthcare premiums. They just kept rising basically at the exact same rate as before, except now we're paying, um, you know, a fortune in additional taxpayer funds on top of what we're paying in our premiums and deductibles are, have risen even more steeply. So premiums kept rising. Deductibles went up and we're spending a lot more uh, on our taxes. And so I would say Obamacare was a 100 percent complete failure. Um, on everything that they said it would do, everything they promised it would do. The only thing that it really did uh, of any significance is it did reduce the number of uninsured, but it did that by putting them on Medicaid, which means, you know, taxpayers are picking up the full cost for that. And it's pretty low quality healthcare as well. And so, uh, and by the way, they could have done that without doing any of the rest of the stuff in the bill. They could have just done a Medicaid expansion, left everyone else alone and had the same accomplishment in terms of reducing, you know, the number of uninsured. And so I, I think that bill is basically a total failure, but of course, Republicans were also a total failure on repeal and replacing it, which they told us about a million right, times. Right, they were right, repealing. right. And then, you know, then they've come you know, completely unable to deliver anything on that. And so, um, you know, there, there have been some good bills introduced on the House side on health care, uh, on health care reform in various ways, uh, expanded HSAs, more price transparency, more competition. And so uh, if we do have a Republican sweep, 
we'll be in a position to actually do something positive on healthcare, something that will bring costs down, bring people more, bring more competition, more control. I think we've got to reverse the consolidation trend. I think that's the key to anything we do on healthcare is we've got to get away from these giant healthcare systems because they're, they've got, then they have bureaucracies that are big enough to deal with the insurance companies and the government. I think we need to get back to, uh, you know, private physicians groups and uh, individual practices being economically viable and uh, let people have that personal relationship with their provider that so many people have lost and uh, really go in the direction of uh, that kind of making healthcare choices personal and uh, instead of dealing with massive, most people now, right now, most of healthcare is the interplay of like three massive bureaucracies, some giant crazy insurance company, some giant crazy health system and some giant crazy government agency. That's, I'd like to get it from three to zero if possible, or at least to, to, to one or two. And so I'm hoping that Republicans will be uh, much more aggressive on health care than, than they have been. And, uh, you know, one of the problems we have on health care is Republicans want to change the subject when it comes up because they know oh, that's a Democrat issue. And, and, and that's let the Democrats have kind of a free field uh, to keep moving things in the wrong direction. So, they, you know, the other thing that Inflation Reduction Act did, along with all the green energy spending and all the crazy giveaways to electric vehicles, the other thing that it did is it took $280 billion out of Medicare prescription drug spending uh, via price controls and uh, put it into the pot to give away to the green groups and all the rest of it. So, I mean, they used Medicare basically as a piggy bank for, that green, for the green energy spending. Um, that's very stupid politically i mean if republicans were smart they would be saying you know they they stole money from medicare that was supposed to be used for prescription drugs to give away to their green energy cronies i mean that's like 90 percent of voters think that's a bad idea but i didn't see anyone talking about that in the 2022 election it probably is too sophisticated for them um it's not a quick you know kind of Catching little phrase, not sexy, I guess, is the word you use the term. Well, I think, you know, most of these candidates thought all they had to do was to say, you know, inflation's terrible, vote Republican. And uh, that wasn't enough. And it was true, but it wasn't enough. The talking with Phil Kerber today is always great to talk with Phil, President of American Commitment. Checks in with us every once in a while and um, engages us with absolutely up-to-date, update, insightful information about a number of topics. AmericanCommitment.org. Check that site out and participate in the letters and advocacy positions that are taken there. Phil, great to stop by. I hope you uh, are safe traveling the streets of D.C. I have to say that. Devil made me do it. <laughs> so uh, have a great weekend, and uh, thanks for stopping by. All right. Have a good one, Ward. Warthog Command Center out.